0: Father, we thank you. I thank you for that song and especially that last verse. Uh, Our prayer is that you would make us channels of your love and blessing in this dark world and that you would be able to use us. And we just pray that you would uh, uh, bring out in this message your love and grace and will for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dads, today's the day we get to talk about dads. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to talk about direction, because that has also something to do with what our uh, verse has uh, says in it. There's a line out of one of the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's Prince Caspian, and they're lost. The kids are lost in the woods, and one of them, uh, one of the boys, scolds his sister, and he says, "That's the trouble with girls: you can't keep a map in your head." And Lucy looks back at him and says, we have more important things to put in our heads. Well, having a map in your head is uh, a part of war, and that's kind of, if you remember the first time I preached this, I'm kind of reusing this again, but it's war the good war, but it's something that guys uh, typically through the ages have done, and having direction is a good thing if you're going to fight a battle. Knowing where you're going. And I don't know if you're acquainted with the Horatio Hornblower uh, movies from uh, A&E. But in one of them, he's a young lieutenant. And he has sort of given his uh, a command of this ship which sinks. Because somebody blew a hole in the side of it. And he's in a boat. There's like four Englishmen or five Englishmen. He's one of those Englishmen. And there's about, oh, I don't know, 12, 15 of the enemy in there. And he knows they're going to be able to take over because they're just floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean someplace. So what he does is, at some appropriate point, when he sees this is happening, he takes all the navigation equipment he has and he throws it in the ocean. Well, now nobody knows where they're going. And so... They go on for a few days like this, and they know that they're drawing closer and closer to France. They know they're getting closer and closer to France. And they come around this point, and lo and behold, they haven't been getting closer to France at all. In fact, their ship, the English ship, the Indy, is lying right there. And it means instant surrender for the Frenchmen. And the question is what happened? And what happened was Horatio knew where he was going. So in all of the rowing and all of the uh, gyrations on the sea, he kept taking them unknown to the place he knew where the Indy was going to be. And they got on and saved the day and everything. And that's a great dad. Well, he wasn't dad at that point. But anyway, guys, that's the kind of stuff that God wants us to do. So as we're looking at First Timothy, we realize this is kind of a really hard book in a way because something has happened in the Christian world. It's happened in Rome. Everything has begun to become unglued because of Nero. And as I said before, this is after the history in the book of Acts. So we don't exactly know where this falls in, but... Oh, Happy Father's Day. I, don't, I, I didn't take the flower up, but guys like flowers too, right? Anyway. Okay, so if you look right at the bottom, the fire in Rome is about 64. Most people think this is when First and Second Timothy are written. After 64, after things are already burning, and Paul will soon be executed. There's a lot of tension in this book. So he says to Timothy, when I left you in Ephesus, I was on my way to Macedonia, I told you to remain in Ephesus... That you would charge certain people. That's chapter 1. Chapter 1 is kind of a charge to Timothy. Paul is on his way to Macedonia. And as you look up there in Macedonia, you've got Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. Philippi was a Roman town. Their soil was supposed to have been like as if it were Roman soil. And so if anything was shaking in the Roman Empire, that in, in the church of Philippi was dear to Paul's heart. That's probably where he was going. No, this is how we normally look at First Timothy. Timothy is given apostolic authority to reform this church that had blown apart. He is given authority to set elders. He is given authority to set deacons. He is given authority to say, no, you do this and you do this. And obviously he's building the team. But there are some things that have happened in the church with regard to leadership. And so Timothy is having to stand in... And do this. And this isn't easy for Timothy. He's done so much of his ministry with Paul, but now Paul is gone and he's on his own and he gets this letter, and this letter is like the manual on how to put the church back. Now, normally when we think of this, we think of the older gentleman, Paul walking with the younger gentleman, but the tension in this book looks more like this. Timothy is having to hold on. He is having to fight. He is having to put himself in places where he has never been before. And so this is the coach telling his young trainee, this is how you have to fight the fight. So in chapters two and three, these are kind of the the building block chapters of the book. Paul has told Timothy, this is what You do. This is the foundation. Not a whole lot of tension here. It's just more like step one, step two, step three. Order the church with regard to its mission. Okay? Pray. We're going to stay under the the radar. We're going to be praying for um, all of the leaders so that God can give us everything that we need to get the job done. And then here's what I want. I want the men to order themselves like this. They need to have that direction in mind. They need to be praying a certain way. Women... They should be thinking like this, and the fact that he mentions good works, you realize that this is, especially if you see it in some of Paul's other letters, that this is an amazing tool of evangelism. And maybe we'll even talk about that later. And so he talks about that, and then he talks about who are the ones who lead, who are the ones who protect, and they they set up and determine the teaching, and who have the authority in the church. These are the elders who serve in an official capacity in the church. These are the deacons. And he comes to the end of that, and now what he's done, it's almost as if he and Timothy, if you have them walking together, have come up above the clouds a little bit, and he's going to say, okay, and this is why we do this, Timothy. This is how important the church is on earth. And John talked about two of those verses last week, and we're going to talk about the last one. Now, the one thing I want to say about this, and we talked about this with the youth this last week, and I, I think some of you adults maybe can understand what, what they grasped, was that in talking about the truth, we have a problem. And our problem is this, we are too uh, organized or conceptual in our thinking, so when, and we're afraid too, and that fear does wonderful things to us. And so what we do is we do this, we say, okay... Truth, okay. There must be bullet points in the truth. Let's organize the truth. Let's conceptualize the truth. Okay, how do I say the truth? What, you know, how do, how do you put that together? How do you bring that to a person so they can kind of understand what is the truth? How do you understand what is the truth? I, I'm afraid just talking about that. I mean, I get flutters in my head. If I had to go talk to Ed back there, I'd go, Ooh! Hey, am I going to be able to explain the truth to Ed? Well, here's the deal. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot understand the truth without Jesus. The truth is a relationship. It isn't just a bunch of stuff out there that we're going to contend for. You don't have to... I don't have to contend for Jesus. If I know who Jesus is... He is the truth. And the brilliant thing about that, and we we know this, is that we could not possibly understand the truth. You could put it out in all the bullet points you wanted. You cannot understand the truth unless you understand Jesus. Because until he opens our heart, until he opens our eyes, until he removes this veil that's hanging over us, we can't grasp any of that stuff. And so, when you come up to the truth, the first thing that you can have, if you want to, is a sense of joy. He's our, and fill in those words, he's our lover, he's our friend, he's our protector. And it's important, the reason I brought all of that in, it's not only important to grasp that, guys, You have to have a good relationship with this friend, with this protector, with this Lord, and that will open a lot of doors for you to walk further into this. But the reason that's important is because the passage I have, verse 16, is all about that. The mystery is a person. So when Paul says in verse 16, great Indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He's saying, this is obvious. What, whatever we're talking about here, we have to confess. It's a wonder. It's, maybe it isn't hard to explain, but the, being able to wrap your mind around it. And he says here, the mystery of godliness. Well, uh, this word godliness is a wonderful word because in English it says godliness. It has the word God in it, but in Greek it doesn't have the word God in it at all. It's the mystery and in some of your, your versions you might see the mystery of our religion. Well, it's not religion either. It's the mystery of our reverence, the mystery of why we're devoted, the mystery of why we honor God. It's the mystery of why we are doing what we're doing. And so when he talks to Timothy later in this book, in the next chapter actually, and he says, train yourself in godliness. He is talking about training yourself in being absolutely devoted and reverent and obedient and honoring to God in every situation of your life. Train yourself in... Being ready to honor God, no matter where you are. Why do we honor God? Why would that even be a mystery? Well, maybe for us, we can you know, we can push that together, but um, let me mention something else that Paul says. Um, at the beginning of Romans and then at the end of Romans, he talks about the fact that uh, it says the obedience of faith. He says... God chose me to be, at the beginning, he says, God chose me to be a servant to bring about the obedience of faith. Okay. At the end, he says, the mystery of God was revealed to bring about the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? Well, it's like, why do you obey something you can't see? I mean, if somebody walked in the door right now with great authority, say a police officer, and he really had power and authority and all this stuff, there would be no mystery of us obeying him. We would simply say, yes, sir, and we would go about our, our business. If, if it was a chief of police or if it was a fireman, he said, evacuate this building, we would evacuate the building. There's no mystery to that. You don't see God. All we've been told is that the Son of God died on the cross for our sins. And we obey. The mystery of obedience. And so, what Paul is talking about here, great we confess is the mystery of why we are living our lives like this. Why we are willing to lay them down the way we do. Why we are willing to contend for the souls of lost people. It's a mystery. And God has brought it out in a way that only a heart of faith can understand. So we have the obedience of faith. We have the mystery of why we're doing what we're doing. And guys, this is important to understand. This is sort of the road map. The things that Paul's going to be saying here are very important. There, some people think that this is a, a part of a song. That was written. So, I mean, for theologians, they look at this and they say, "Well, see, even in the '60s, they were already formulating their theology." When you go through this list, it looks like kind of a doctrinal list, but the way it's rhythm, the, the rhythm of it, for those people who understand rhythm, which I don't, it seems like it may have been a song that was written out. But this is the thing, guys: even if you don't see the way even if things start getting cloudy, even if you're in the middle of the ocean, even if you're in the middle of a confused society, you still have direction because you know the way. You know. You know what I mean personally. You know Him. The mystery of our religion. He was manifest in the flesh. I'll read this quick, and uh, if I run out of time, then you can uh, pick up where I left off. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So when it says, he was manifest in the flesh, well, this is kind of an easy one, isn't it? I mean, obviously the answer is, Jesus was manifest in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, for someone who doesn't know the Lord, or somebody who's just come to the recognition of who He is, all you need to see is that He is a Savior. That's all you really need to see. That God loves us, He loved the world, He loves you so much that He was willing... To send his only begotten Son, He became flesh. God Himself became flesh, and that's great. I mean, if you just had that, that would be enough. But this is what I want to say: is that He is so much more. He is so much more. Like when you see, uh, you know, and this is why reading through the Bible is so important. Because we can read a verse like this and that's enough. But if you're reading through the Bible and you see what it says about Adam and Eve and the promise that Eve will have a child, there will be a child born, and then you see that as it goes to Abraham and you see that as it goes to David. I mean, we've been reading, if you've been in the one-year Bible, we've been reading about David and that amazing promise that God makes to David. But it isn't just that. It's thinking of the years that happen in between these particular promises and what happens afterward. And you realize it encompasses the hopes of so many people that we have never met, so many generations of people whose hope in their heart was that God would speak, that he would come, that he would deliver. They knew something was wrong. And to take all of that cloud of reality, all of those people, all of those lives, some of whom died tragically, put all of that rolled up together, the answer, that long-awaited thing, became flesh. And dwelt among us. He was manifest in the flesh. So that when Simeon enters the temple, the Holy Spirit had told him that today was the day he enters the temple and he sees this couple and they're holding a baby and he takes the baby up in his hands. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, do now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the sight of all the people a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You can't even wrap your mind around what he was manifest in the flesh means. You know, I put a pill up here. That pill. Really not a pill, but if you can see it, you need to go get a pill. But anyway, imagine there's a pill up there. And I say... That pill will cure you, regardless of if you have cancer. Yeah, You could have stage four ovarian cancer. That pill will cure you. You look at that pill. Well, that's a pretty small pill. Manifest in that pill, hours put in by chemists, many chemists, who had to go get an education and had to spend thousands of man hours, teams, not just one chemist, teams of chemists worked on that pill. They came up with a formula. But that formula had to be mass-produced, which caused other chemists who are into macrochemistry, who have all of that education, they had to design a way to make Thousands of pills, because the process for making one pill is one thing. process for making a million pills is something entirely different, and they have to understand that chemistry. Did you understand that was manifest in that pill? And not only that, what made the pill? Some guy pushing it into a little mold? Who made the mold? Who made the machine? Engineers make the machines. Machines are made out of metal. M- metal machines need to be designed. There have to be chemists and metallurgists who decide what... You see where I'm going with that? Billions and billions of dollars in man-hours come into that one pill. So when we read a line like, he was manifest in the flesh, what an amazing thing that is. All of the lives you read about in the Bible all of the tragedies, all of the prayers, all of the hopes, the answer was prepared and manifest in the flesh. Wow. And it's a He. It's somebody that we can know. It's somebody that we can love. It's somebody that we can pray to. It's somebody who listens to us all the time. I'm convinced that Jesus is sitting somewhere in your bedroom in the morning, guys, waiting for you to wake up because it's going to be a good day. We're going to have a great day today. Let's do something. Can you imagine that He would love you that much, that He would be excited about you? He cherishes and nourishes us, it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Cherish. That's a mystery. Manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Now, the idea here, vindicated by the Spirit, again, is a pretty easy idea. I mean, again, we get this in, um, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Spirit, concerning the Son, who is Designated, uh, who is descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And where it says here, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And vindicated, so vindicated by the Spirit, he was shown by his resurrection to be the Son of God. But why use the word vindicated? I, I could have just used the word shown. The word vindicated means something about justified. Not just revealed, but there's more to it. it. It's sort of like the the stamp of, of some kind of righteous approval. Uh, there's some, something having to do here with righteousness. And so here's the thing. When you think of vindicated by the Spirit, one of the things you can think about is this. Jesus being raised from the dead vindicated the Father. It showed that the Father was just and righteous. I mean, would anyone think that he wasn't? Oh, yeah. Because if you look at Romans chapter 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by His... This is why I would never win any awards at Awana. How many of these do you get? How many failures do you get? We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom... God raised as an expiation by his blood to be revealed, to be accepted by faith, to be revealed by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in times past, God had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and justifies him who has faith in Christ Jesus. Why would all that be written there about justifying God in showing God's righteousness. The point is, why could he pass over those former sins? He could pass over those former sins back after Adam and around the time of Noah. He could make judgments back then, and if, he, if God had any accusers, which he did, that would be Satan saying, you cannot possibly exclude this person from Judgment. And God says, yes, I can. Well, how? Wait. Well, it was like a 4,000-year wait. But the point was, when Jesus was raised from the dead as the righteous accepted sacrifice for man's sin, God showed that in all that waiting, he had, in fact, acted righteously. He was justified in all of his doings because he had already, before the foundation of the world, known how man's sin could be forgiven. Remember what, what one of Job's friends says? He, he sees a, a spirit and the spirit comes and he says, man cannot be righteous in the sight of God. Just accept that as a fact. Man cannot be righteous in the sight of God. Can a man be righteous in the sight of God? Jesus is the yes. But you had to wait an awful long time for the yes. Vindicated by the spirit. God the Father. But you know what else happened in that? And that was mentioned this morning. Um, Somebody mentioned the fact of uh, fear of death. That was John. Jesus triumphed over death, didn't he? Because a a normal man should have stayed in the grave. A normal man, once he reached a spiritual dimension, they should have been put into punishment. That didn't happen to Jesus. Why didn't it happen to Jesus? Because Jesus was fully righteous. Death couldn't hold him. And you know what that means? That means that Jesus can take away the fear of death. Now, this is kind of trivia, but I'm going to throw it out really quick. When the people pick up on what the Pharisees had said about Jesus being possessed by the devil... When Jesus talks to the people, he adds a little bit more. And what he says is this. How can a man enter a strong man's house when he's fully armed and plunder his goods? Unless he first overcomes that strong man and he takes away his armor in which he trusted. And I I remember reading that going, what was the armor in which he trusted? What was Satan trusting in that could keep us slaves? The fear of death. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. When Jesus rose from the dead, vindicated in the spirit, he took away the fear of death if we're in him. I mean, isn't that a good thing to take to your neighbor? Are you afraid of dying? No, I'm not afraid of everybody's afraid of dying. But we don't have to be afraid. Boy, is that going to pay dividends in the future? Vindicated in the Spirit. And then, you know, on our planet, we wonder about justice. Is there justice on this planet? There's a lot of bitter people. I was talking to a guy yesterday. You know, I, I was talking to him about his relationship with God. He says, well, me and the guy upstairs, we've got, uh, we got a disagreement. Or he didn't even say, he said, there's something between us. I said, so what's between you? And he said, he took my son. He said, and you know, he, he said the same the thing that I've heard. And he's a Texan, so I really, truly understood. He said, but it ain't right for, for a man's son to die before he does. You ought to die first, and then your son lives. He said, but he took my son. And I said, well, you know, I said, Jim, um, he understands that. I said, his son died too. I said, not only that, his son was put to an awful death. He was murdered in broad daylight and no one lifted a finger. Roman government didn't lift a finger. The Jewish people didn't lift a finger. He was so unjustly treated and put to death. And at the end of our conversation, he says, well, you gave me a little bit to think about, but we still got to talk it over. I I hope you will. But, you know, you think of all the injustice in the world. When it says Jesus is vindicated in the Spirit, Somehow or other, there will be justice in places we have never seen before. There will be vindication because of what Jesus did and rose from the dead. There will be rights wronged and God will wipe away every tear. There is justice on this earth because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, just said very simply... This is why you need to believe Jesus has been raised from the dead if you want to be saved. That's why it says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Being raised from the dead has to be part of what you trust in when you come to Jesus Christ. He, and we know Him, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, seen by angels, Again, this is so simple, right? You can just blaze over this one. Are you guys mystified that he was seen by angels? Really? I mean, at his birth, right? Hark the herald angels singing glory to... They didn't sing, by the way, just as they spoke. I don't know. Of course he was seen by angels. However, interesting thought here. The commentators think this is pointing to the fact that he was seen by angels after... He rose from the dead, because he was. The women who came to the tomb saw angels. I'm going to boil this down really quick. In Revelation, there is something mystical about Jesus. Okay, You get into chapter 11, and there's a verse from Handel's Messiah, uh, where it says, the, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of... Of our Lord and of his Christ. Okay, so the angels are saying this. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom. Now, at this point now, because this has happened, okay, we can draw a line right here. It wasn't the case there, but now it is the case. The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord, God the Father, and of his Christ. So what is going on there? There is something happening in the angelic realm, and I can't take the time to break it down. But you see it in Revelation because it's peculiar. The kingdom of our Lord. When does God not reign? Unless he himself has said that he would reign through a man. And if all men are sinful, then God can't reign. And that's why Satan can carry on this charade and this thing that he's doing, destroying lives by the thousands. So God is allowing this thing to happen. I don't even know why, but this is what it says. The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And it's designated that Jesus is the Christ. He is the human anointed king, the son of man. And the angels are in awe of that. And you read a little further, basically what happens is the two witnesses are put to death. Everybody views them for a couple of days. And God breathes into them and they stand on their feet and in front of all their enemies they're vindicated. Alright? And then... That last seal is broken, and then there's a fight in heaven. And Michael wins the fight. And it says, there was no longer any place for the dragon and his angels. And they were cast down to the earth. And then you hear a voice that says this. It says, rejoice, O heaven, and all who dwell within. For the devil has been cast out. What that means is that the neighborhood is finally cleaned up. In all of this history, the neighborhood is finally cleaned up. And what that draws my attention back to is the rebuke that the Pharisees gave to Jesus as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, and the disciples are crying out, Glory to the King, the Son of David, peace in heaven. When when they say peace in heaven, the, the Pharisees just... Don't know what to do with that. The thing is, the Christ will bring peace to heaven. And that comes through us too. Because we are the ones who belong to that Christ. We are the ones who call on Jesus as our Savior. And as it says that Satan is defeated, it says, And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony And they loved not their lives even unto death. And Satan is thrown out of heaven. And the angels have peace in heaven now. He was seen by angels. When he rose from the dead, the angels looked upon him and they understood that this would be the one. This is the one for all eternity. Kind of Cool stuff. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of what we're doing. Guys, this is important. This is the direction. This is why Paul is telling Timothy this is really important stuff. This isn't just a couple of verses we sing. Maybe it was a song like that. Maybe it was a song that was sung a couple of hundred times and they weren't even listening to the words anymore. But for Paul to quote this and for the Spirit to quote this, this meant a lot. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Um, I think it was kind of evident, right? Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, but why would that be obvious? Why would it be obvious that if you went to China and you told this story, that people would open their hearts? Or if you went up into the Andes someplace and you told this story, that people would open their hearts. Or if you went up into Russia, or France, or any place, and told this story, people would open their hearts. Because we are all made in the image of God. It's proof that we are made in the image of God. Well, maybe the Chinese need their own separate God. That's why they have Taoism. And maybe the people from the Middle East they need their own God, and that's why they have Islam. Baloney. There is one name under heaven whereby we must all be saved, and that's Jesus. And the thing that is so neat about that is people respond. People respond, and they and and Paul is just saying it's working. He was preached on in the world, and whether they were Roman or whether they were idolaters or whatever, and we see this in the book of Acts, they were burning things. They were uh, they were making the merchants mad because they were just lock, stock, and barrel flying to Jesus Christ. These are they who have turned the world upside down, and they're here among us now. What are we going to do? And the further the message spread... People were opening their hearts. How in the world does that happen? It's because we're looking for a Savior. You know, and Jesus said it. He said to the Pharisees in John chapter 10, the reason that you cannot understand what I'm saying to you is you don't belong to my sheep. And that's pretty bad. I had to eat that up. "You You don't belong to my sheep because my sheep hear my voice. And they know me. And I give them eternal life. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me and I give them eternal life. My sheep. Regardless of who those sheep are. Whether they're in Indonesia. Or they're down in Argentina. Or they're someplace in the Philippines. Or they're in India. No matter where they are. They will hear my voice. There's a story told about a woman during the... Civil War, her uh, son was in a battle where the uh, the Union won, but they just took so many casualties. And she hadn't heard from her son, and so she went there herself, and she went through all of the different uh, infirmary places looking for him, and she found him in one place. And, and he was beaten up. He was unconscious. And she, she said to the doctors, can I go in there? And they said, no, you can't go in there. And she said, can I please go in there? And this doctor says, look, here's the thing. I'm afraid with the severity of his injuries, if if you stir him at all, that something bad could happen. And she said, please, doctor, let me go in there. So he lets her go in there. And realizing, you know, taking the caution that the doctor gave her, she sits next to him and she takes his hand. And says his name really lightly. And he stirs Without opening his eyes and says, Mom, I knew you were going to come for me. I knew you were going to come. I think there are people out there who need to hear the word of God. They need to hear Jesus' voice, the only way they can hear it is through us. Interrupting them when they're washing their car. Interrupting them when they're trying to set up the sprinkler system. And to remind them somehow that God loves them. And believe it or not, their hearts get stirred. I have heard so many stories missionaries tell about hitting some place in the jungle and they get there and the people say, We knew you were coming. We've been praying. We knew you were coming. And people are ready. He was proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Taken up into glory. Now, if you want to see the word glory really used well, read the book of Revelation. Amazing glory that the Son of Man has. The Christ of God, the Lamb that was slain, given amazing glory. And God took him up. God took him up as proof. But, you know, it isn't just proof. He was commanded, right? The Lord said to my Lord, come up and sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a stool under your feet. That means that what's happening right now is... You think the world's out of control? No, it's not. I remember telling somebody, you know what? God's going to jujitsu this whole thing. It looks like they're all winning, doesn't it? But no. God is getting the world ready for the coming of His Son, and it will be perfect just the way God wants when the Son breaks loose on the earth. His glory is amazing, and we are part of that glory. We are... The bride of Christ. You know, it's kind of interesting, you know, in trying to, to think about this, even for the youth, you know, how, how do you talk about how special the church is for the Son of Man? for for Jesus Christ. I mean, we are one-of-a-kind people. And it, it calls us things. It says, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And the Lord cherishes and nourishes His body. Do you realize you're being cherished and nourished? Some of us are being cherished and nourished too much, I know. But, you know, the thing is, every day, this is His heart toward us. He cherishes us. He nourishes us. He loves us. And then when it calls us the Bride of Christ, I, I always think to myself, well, I can't get into that. As a guy, I'm sorry. I really have a hard idea, uh, a hard time wrapping my mind around the Bride of, the bride of Christ until I remember I'm a groom. I, I was a groom at one point, you know. And what did I think about my bride? It's like, whoa, dude. I love my bride. I still love my bride. I'll do anything for her. Would he do anything for us? Of course he would. He's saying we should always be asking and seeking to knock him. And Then I think, I was just reading this recently, David's 30 mighty men. His mighty men. I mean, they're a category of guys. And you know what's so interesting? Is that when his son Adonijah and Joab and Abathar, they, they cook up this uh, this plot to make sure that Solomon doesn't become king. None of the 30 men. Went with him. And remember, one of the 30 men was Job's brother. And they were faithful to David. And we are his faithful people. For all eternity, the Son of God, the Son of Man, will have us as a special group. The church will always be his church, the firstborn of those who are raised from the dead, with that firstborn. That's an amazing thing. So anyway, what do we do? What do we do? Guys, your men, your dads, God has put you in a certain place to lead the charge. And ladies, of course, you're included in this too, but I want to focus on the guys. You have to keep the direction in your head. But here's what you have to keep even more. It isn't just that you know the truth. You are loved by the truth. You are held by the truth. You are embraced by the truth. You are called the friend of the truth. He loves you. He wants you to lead the way. Don't let down. Don't listen to the world. This is why the church is so important. Because people need to hear this message. And you need to make sure that it can be faithfully proclaimed in the next generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. I just think, like with Paul, the intricacy, the wonder of your wisdom and your knowledge and the things that you do, how could we possibly comprehend this? How could our Savior be so much and yet be the friend who knocks on the door of our hearts and says, hey, let me in so we can have a meal? Somebody who loves us like no other, who is faithful unto us as a father is to a child, as a shepherd is to a sheep, And to think that we belong to Him and we have the privilege of sitting with Him and we have the privilege of telling other people about this wonderful person that we know. And so we thank You. We thank You for all of this mystery, but that You have, in Your grace and in Your love, revealed it to us and shown us how precious we are in the sight of our amazing Savior. Amen.